0: Hello and welcome back to the theater. It is a tired but true cliche that the modern world offers everyday comforts that our 19th century ancestors would consider the heights of luxury. At a moment's notice we can spill an abundance of light into any room, have appliances that turn lengthy chores into mere afterthoughts, not to mention an ever-expanding codex of human knowledge and experience at our fingertips. And though there are plenty of psychologically disturbing stories set in the modern era, the past continually proves to be an excellent breeding ground for exploring the mysterious shadowy tropes of gothic horror. There is something about a more rudimentary world, a simplified living, which invites the mind to wonder about supernatural beings, sinister motives, and creatures that sometimes feel clumsy in today's setting. Even still, we need not inject the supernatural into the past to instill it with terror. Without monsters or occult phenomena, the very nature of our ancestors' world is often brutal enough. It is accompanied with a spirited pursuit of knowledge, of unearthing simple earthly facts and a willingness on both the explorers and victims to sacrifice their very own bodies to obtain it. I am speaking, of course, of the vicious world of Victorian medicine. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and you are listening to The Mania Podcast. Throughout the show, we have brushed up and explored several incidents involving 19th and 18th century medical cases. In the episode The Mortification of John Downing of 1762, we discovered a family that suffered from mortified limbs due to eating a bad batch of rye bread afflicted with ergot. The doctor was unable to diagnose the problem and, inevitably, the solution became amputation, conducted with little else than brandy to dull the pain. Anesthesia wouldn't be used consistently for about another century. Surgeons felt skittish about their patients fainting or otherwise losing consciousness during even the most painful of operations, and would sometimes stir them back to awareness with various solutions or powders before continuing. Today, this sounds like a torture technique, but in their time it represented best practice. In 1743, for the episode The Truths We Bury, we followed a mother, Who allegedly carried a stillborn child for many years. As disease festered and the time came to remove the necrotic tissue, there was no doctor on hand, and thus a local butcher was instead used for what should have been a very delicate operation. But even still, the mother survived. Lay people conducting emergency surgical operations or amputations wasn't altogether too uncommon, speaking relatively. Unfortunately, The 19th and 18th century is rife with stories of patients trying their own chances at remedying their ails, And yet, with doctors whose own theories and practices weren't always in keeping with evidence or valid data, one can't help but wonder, in certain situations, if a layman's odds weren't just as good taking matters into their own hands. In the 19th and 18th century, operating theaters were just that. They were theaters. Students of medicine attended surgeries like a lecture, but for particularly bizarre instances or extreme cases where the operation represented something of an experiment, commoners would cram the seats and even pay to see it. This was highly controversial amongst surgeons. Some welcomed it and others sought for the negligence that it really was as crowds created unnecessary distractions and unsanitary conditions. Although the public's excitement to see medical practice evolve in real time is admittedly a rousing sentiment, simultaneously it encouraged surgeons to undergo operations that weren't always necessary, or with survival rates so low, the patient would be better off living out their years in dubious conditions or taking an alternate course of treatment entirely. There are anecdotes from these times of medical students cheering in particularly climatic moments of an operation. When perhaps a surgeon tied a tricky artery shut or cut out a rib previously thought to be too dangerous to excise from a patient, as though the students were watching a sports match unfold. It is safe to say that in at least a handful of scenarios, a hunger for anatomical knowledge was cloaked in what was expressed as the patient's best interest. In reality, some of these explorative surgeries were foolhardy at best, a chance for the surgeon to try out a new method that was perhaps only theoretical. Yet even hindsight is unwieldy. We cannot necessarily say what went to waste, as every excursion, every death, at least we hope, contributed to those giant shoulders that doctors stand on today. Suffice it to say, the Victorian world is chock full of shocking brushes with disease and physiological complications, met with solutions and procedures just as odd. Instead of pursuing one story, we will explore three of them in the hopes of painting a more full, broad picture of the times. And rather than confine ourselves to mere 60 or so years, which is the technical length of the Victorian era, we'll allow ourselves a little leeway dipping back into the mid-18th century as well. Firstly, let's discuss some questionable remedies. An eminent Swiss physician by the name of Samuel August André David Tisoy had a, let's say, interesting first aid remedy for victims of drowning. He was the author of one of the first studies of migraine, as well as, unfortunately, uh, the evils of masturbation, of which we all know are very deadly and fatal. Uh, Tisoy recommends that after a person has been drowned from several minutes up to a quarter of an hour, to strip them and rub them strongly with dry, coarse linen on a well-heated bed. Before CPR, it was thought that rubbing the body would help revive circulation. Tossoi also recommended that a strong and healthy person force their own breath into the patient's lungs. But he had one little addendum, that tobacco smoke should also be introduced simultaneously. The more orifices, the better. Tossoi also suggests that a jugular vein be opened to let out, you know, 10 to 12 ounces of blood, just, just to be safe. The next course of action would be to introduce the smoke into the opposite orifice of the mouth, so delicately referred to as the Fundament in his writings. For this exercise, the tobacco pipe would be attached to a bladder and a tube, so as to more efficiently blow smoke up the rectum. Tesoy wasn't alone in this idea. The Society of the Recovery of Drowned Persons dedicated to the study of resuscitation was founded in Amsterdam in 1767. This technique, known as Dutch fumigation, was believed to be remarkably valuable, so much so that tubes and bellows, similar to the ones you'd use to stoke a fire, were installed in public places, like coffee and barbershops, much in the way that we see defibrillators installed today. At the time, Tobacco smoke enemas were thought to remedy more than a few ales, especially when concerning the gastric system. Tobacco itself was considered to be something of a panacea, treating everything from cancer, headaches, to respiratory problems. It was even used to fumigate buildings, to stifle disease, and promote cleanliness. The physicians suspected that tobacco stimulated the body, and therefore was a good tool to revive the drowned and bring back equilibrium to the ill. Being a tobacco enthusiast myself, I cannot help but just wistfully imagining myself on the streets of 19th century London enjoying a freshly rolled tobacco cigarette, only for passerbys to remark to themselves about how remarkably health conscious I was being. But alas, doubts about tobacco's effectiveness as a medicine reach as far back as the 17th century, with King James I being an early critic. If you ask me, Thinking about how commonplace a procedure like blowing smoke up people's rectums was is a very good exercise in gratitude. For me, it's just emblematic of the times. Here we have a resuscitation method that renowned physicians swore by. I mean, they swore by this, right? They installed these tools in public places. Yet it must have been so clear, it must have so clearly failed to produce recurring success, let alone any evidence defending its pragmatic application. To think about this, to get an idea about how ideas and methods spread during such a time, let's hear a direct quotation from one of Tissoy's writings. He says, The heat of a dung heap may also be beneficial, and I have been informed by a sensible spectator of it that it effectually contributed to restore life to a man who had remained six hours underwater. So Tisoy is saying that if somebody has been dead and underwater for six hours, just rub shit on their chest. So there you have it. If the Dutch fumigator isn't working, search in earnest for any nearby cow pies. Search hard and try to find them. And upon applying it to the deceased's body, you may begin to see the wonders of necromancy, uh, let alone resuscitation at work. So, that's the end of the first anecdote. Uh, Moving on. Alessandro Volta, the pioneer of electrochemistry, was a professor at the University of Pavia in northern Italy, one of the oldest universities in the world. While Volta worked on conceiving the first electric battery in the late 18th century, his colleagues were also producing research that was considered cutting-edge. Unlike the Battery, however, not all their findings would survive the harsh weathering of time. One Dr. Valeriano Brera, a young physician-appointed professor at the age of 22, gave a lecture that was recorded in an article for the Annals of Medicine for the Year 1797. While Brera had some research and theories that would prove evergreen, such as the idea that parasitic organisms originate from outside the body, Rather than inside, as was the accepted notion at the time, some of the practices he championed weren't so stellar. One mystery which boggled physicians during the late 18th century was the difference between receiving medicine topically and orally. They struggled to understand why opium, for example, was effective when ingested but not when rubbed into the skin. One doctor Ciarenti held the opinion that the quickest way of getting medicine into circulation was through the skin. Ciorenti hypothesized that there was something in the gastric juices that activated drugs like opium, so he conducted an experiment. He mixed three grains of pure opium with two scruples of the gastric juices of a crow. For anybody who is not an apothecary or a savant at extracting vomit from birds, three scruples is about one-third dram or just over a single gram. Though it's easy for us to chuckle at what sounds like a bad rendition of a medieval potion. There's a stroke of genius behind it. Dr. Cilarente carefully considered the diet of rotten meat that crows subsist on. To him, it was only natural to assume that their gastric juices were more powerful than that of a human's. The doctor applied the mixture to a woman suffering from great pain who refused to take opium by mouth. After waiting 24 hours for the mixture to mature, it was then mixed with simple opium and applied on the backs of the woman's feet. Shockingly enough, the woman professed that the pains were entirely gone within an hour and pronounced herself cured, never returning to the physician. Whether or not she fled out of terror or was genuinely healed remains up for debate. The doctors soon realized that the gastric juices of the crow were too difficult to procure, shocker, and so gradually substituted it with saliva, which I guess makes sense to me. Five other physicians went on to test the technique, echoing its success. But um, despite having a brief spark in the medical community and allegedly good results, the crow vomit potions did not stand the test of time. Though we may be continuing to another incident, we're not done with birds just yet. In the late 19th century, doctors were becoming aware of a common malady amongst infants, one they called the eclampsia of children. This is something of a misnomer, eclampsia is a serious condition which affects women before, during, or after childbirth, characterized by intense seizures that can arise quite suddenly. The reason why this is considered a misnomer is because infants can suffer seizures which appear like those suffered from pregnant women, but the causes are rarely the same. Infants are also prone to convulsions from fevers which appear shocking, but do not always indicate some deadly condition. But don't get too comfortable considering this very grave condition because it's about to take a turn that will make it all but impossible to think about with a straight face. In 1841, a German physician, Karl Friedrich Kahnstadt my God, okay, we're really testing my pronunciation muscles right now. Karl Friedrich Kahnstadt offered a truly remarkable approach to treating children with eclampsia. Carl wrote in his published handbook of the medical clinic if one holds the rump of a dove against the child's anus during paroxysm, the animal quickly dies and the attack ceases just as rapidly. I did say it was remarkable, didn't I? Just imagine this solemn scene, if you will. A mother and father standing over their only child, having just endured birth not weeks before, watching gravely with tears budding at their eyes as their infant endures a fit of seizures. A physician is summoned. Not to worry, he says, reaching into a briefcase. I have just the thing. And then, having revealed a dove, rather like a magician, he tenderly turns the bird around towards the child's rear end, such that their bottoms might kiss for the briefest moment. So, right, like a choir of angels descends upon the room, a heaving, melancholic melody as the dove stutters gasping for air breathing its last while the seizures ebb from the child who then falls to a peaceful healthy sleep and the family just stands there stunned the doctor holding his dead pigeon with a look of deep contemplation like that would be incredible um and according To some 19th century physicians, it was an incident that happened more than a handful of times. This remedy was often offered to the lower classes when they couldn't afford any alternative. The notion so piqued the interest of one doctor that he actually became extremely frustrated when a family used the remedy without him being present as he was so curious if it even worked at all. When he got to try it himself, well, let's just say that there was no choir. Of angels. Of course, it's silly to judge the Victorians on their methods by today's standards. Unlike the Dutch fumigation, this technique wasn't taken too seriously by, by too many. Um, it definitely had a foothold. It earned quite a bit of ridicule and mockery in the medical communities. And who could blame them for having to laugh at it? This remedy was one step away from blindfolded witchcraft. And with that, we'll put a brief cap on the subject before dipping back into it for another episode before the end of October. Once more, I'd like to thank all the supporters of this show, whether you're listening, sharing it with friends or family, or even subscribe to my Patreon page. All of it helps, and none of it is taken for granted. So, until next time, and as always, the theater is ever open to you.